Welcome back to Curious Combinations, and everything's an original podcast. I'm A.F. Tanith, and today I'm covering Vampire Night Season 1, Episodes 10, 11, 12, and 13. So, yeah, this went more or less where I expected it to. Kaname is a scheming creep, Yuki is a useless dum-dum, Maria is Shizuka, who is now dead, and Zero has to drink Kaname's blood to keep from descending into complete and total bloodlust. I admit, I'm a bit disappointed that we didn't get the Yuki reveal this season, and perhaps that means Yuki's backstory will be the crux of the next season's plot. This season dealt most heavily with Zero's backstory, and so I imagine next season will deal more heavily with Kaname and Yuki's intertwined backstories, while hopefully continuing to flesh out the world, which I really do think is the best part of this series. But for now, let's get into the recap. Episode 10 opens with flashbacks of Shizuka. We see her before and after the murder of Zero's family, and the split-second appearance of Ichiru here confirms what I thought previously. Obviously, that dude who looks like Zero that's hanging around with Maria is Zero's brother. Turns out they're twins. In the present, we're continuing to close in on that school ball the Academy is putting on. Maria and Zero share a significant look, and when Maria goes to stroke Yuki's face, Zero freaks out. He grabs Yuki and pulls her rather violently away from Maria, going so far as to scold her for not obeying his orders to stay away from the other girl. Which, like, bud, you're delusional. You're abusive, and you're delusional. A. Yuki doesn't have to obey you. She's not your fucking serf. And B. She didn't even do what you're accusing her of. She didn't go anywhere near Maria. What is she supposed to do? Sprint in the opposite direction every time she sees Maria coming? You're a fucking weirdo. I still can't stand these trash-ass men. Anyway... That night, Cayenne tries to help Yuki with her homework because she's as dumb and useless in the classroom as she is out of it, I guess. And have I mentioned how much I hate this trope? A protagonist is allowed to be smart, you guys. Why must protagonists always range in intelligence from Yusagi Tsukino's functionally illiterate to Harry Potter's gets by with help? Off the top of my head, the only good at math female protagonist that I can think of is Katie from Mean Girls, and that's because that film was literally using her to make the point that it's okay to be smart. Why can't we have a Hermione Granger or an Amy Mizuno or a Janine Kishi as a protagonist for once? Why does the dumb kid always get to be the hero while the smart kid is relevant? to being their sidekick. It drives me insane. Anyway, Zero ends up replacing Cayenne's none-too-strident efforts to help Yuki. Let me be clear, he's not really providing any proper help to her here, but more importantly, he's not doing his own homework while he effortlessly corrects her inept math. It's this subtle reinforcement of our cultural understanding that boys are naturally good at STEM and girls naturally struggle with it. And that shit right there is one of patriarchal capitalism's most insidious tools in steering women and girls toward lower-paying jobs and toward heterosexual marriage to men who treat them the way Zero treats Yuki. But that is a rant for another time. For now, Zero is having a problem. The bite scar on his neck is throbbing, presumably in a very hairy scar hurts when Voldemort is near or extremely emotional kind of way. And when Yuki goes to get Zero some tea to cheer him up, he stands up without a word and holds her hand. With so many of their interactions still reading to me as rather brother-sisterly, these occasional moments of more than siblings subtext continue to skeeve me out. 
He credits his ongoing survival to her support of him, which is nice, I suppose. It's just so hollow when compared to the rest of his behavior. Maybe I shouldn't be expecting a 17-year-old to be able to handle the emotional weight of everything that's happening to him, but Yuki is definitely being expected to handle all that she goes through and all that he puts her through, so I only have so much sympathy for that idea. In our next scene, we find, to my incredible surprise, that Konami is meeting with Maria and with Ichiru. That appearance, that name, he says, and all of his dialogue here makes it quite clear that he knows quite a bit about Maria, who she really is, and what she's up to at the Academy. I don't think he knows all of it, but I am unclear just how much the show wants me to think that he knows. For example, when he says, quote, that appearance, that name, is he talking about Maria, who looks quite a bit like Shizuka, or is he talking about Ichiru, who is obviously Zero's brother? I prefer the latter, I think, though I suspect that neither Maria nor Ichiru's identity is actually still secret to him at this point in the story. I guess I'm just asking how competent a villain Kaname actually is, because I don't think there's any question of his being a villain. He's a love interest, sure, and I don't think he's actually playing the role of antagonist to Yuki's protagonist, at least not right now, but he's a villain nonetheless. No one who schemes, even a fraction of how much Kaname schemes, is anything short of an anti-hero, and nothing so far tells me that Kaname is heroic enough to fit that bill. So, on Zero's way back to his dorm, he gets sidetracked. He finds Maria in the old dorm, and when he pulls a gun on her, she is not remotely intimidated, though she does admit her secret identity to him. She tries to goad him into killing her, and then she moves to kiss him. She stops before she does it, but the tension lingers, and she gloats with a new world-building tidbit. A vampire bitten by a pureblood is beholden to that pureblood's will. Zero must obey Shizuka whether he wants to or not, though his resistance is exactly the thing that drew her to him in the first place. Outside, Yugi spies. She overhears Maria admit that she is secretly Shizuka, and when Maria pulls a blade on Zero for little reason that I can see, Yuki goes to intervene. But before she can, there's our resident creep coming in to pull her away. Kaname, always and forever up to something, drags Yuki back into the hall and wipes her memory of what she's just witnessed. I do not care if this show ends up trying to pull some kind of, oh, his actions only look villainous if you don't know the full story shit. That is villainy right there. Mind wiping and mind control are villain powers, period. Protagonists and heroes can justify using those powers in morally gray situations and inch toward becoming anti-heroes. But this is not a morally gray situation. This is just Kaname being a shifty, scheming control freak. You cannot and will not change my mind. But back to Maria. Shizuka's control over Zero is imperfect, both because she's in Maria's body and because Zero is a stubborn bitch. Their little standoff ends with both of them bleeding, which leaves Zero struggling with the urge to go drink someone to heal faster, and Maria's powers damaged from getting hit by an anti-vampire weapon. With a last taunt about the viciousness and cruelty of vampire hunters, Maria leaves, and Ichiru is visibly disappointed that she has decided not to kill Zero. Sometime later, Yuki wakes back in her dorm room with no memory of what happened or how she got there. In class the next day, Yuki is exhausted and disoriented, which is perfect because it's test day. Zero doesn't show up at all, and Yuki might as well have ditched class herself. We find out later that she literally didn't write anything down on her exam besides her name. It's bad enough that Yori assumes she must be sick. 
Back in the Moon Dorm, Ido, Ruka, and Kane are discussing Kaname and his weird interest in, quote, that girl, meaning Yuki rather than Maria this time, as our next scene is Kaname pulling Yuki away from the other day class students to ask her about attending the ball. Kanami's idea of kind of sort of asking her to go with him is to reminisce on their childhood bonding, cementing their relationship as only slightly less brother-sisterly than hers and Zero's, which is ironic because again, I'm 99% sure that Kaname is the one who's actually her biological brother. But Kaname doesn't actually come right out and make it a date. Yuki babbles about having to kind of work at the ball, considering that she's part of the disciplinary committee, and she admits that she doesn't have a nice dress to wear anyway. Three guesses what that is setting up, and the first two don't count. Once again, this is painfully mid-2000s Harry Potter fanfic. I get that I'm telling on my child self as I mock this, but I have read literally a million versions of this exact scene before. Some female character, maybe an OC, maybe Ginny or Hermione, maybe a gender-swapped Harry, doesn't have a dress for the Yule Ball, and of course she admits this to Malfoy or Teen Sirius or Tom Riddle or somebody, and so of course they wind up surprising her with a perfect dress, lovingly described in detail by the author, usually complete with pictures for reference. It's a really gross flaunting of wealth and power and patriarchy by the male character in question. They get to brag about being able to procure an expensive dress on extremely short notice without worrying about their finances, and he gets to flex his patriarchal muscles by literally dictating what she gets to wear, which has the added bonus of allowing him to make sure that whatever she's wearing is perfectly designed to appeal to his own sexual preference. It's gross, and there's a reason that it shows up in love stories for little girls. The only man who should be buying you clothes at 14 or 15 is your father or other male guardian, but few fathers know how to pick out a party dress that their daughter would actually really like. And at 14 or 15, most girls aren't used to receiving much male affection from anyone besides their dads, assuming they're lucky enough to actually get any affection from him. And so, of course, these jackass teen love interests are this awful mix of young and sexy, but paternalistic and controlling. Again, it's fucking gross. And as an adult, it makes me want to cringe right off this mortal coil. To all creators of teen and young adult stories, I sincerely beg, please stop writing daddy boyfriends. But as Kaname and Ichijo walk away, there's this hilarious shot of a random black cat. I'm not 100% clear on what the point of this cat actually is. It's going to come into play very briefly later when Yuki has a confrontation with Maria, but I'm not sure whether I'm supposed to take from this that the cat was being used by Maria just as that previous black bird was being used as her eyes, or whether this cat is just a hilarious case of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. In the headmaster's office, Yagari and Cayenne argue about Maria. Yagari is furious that she's been allowed into the school, and I hate to admit it, but he's right. Cayenne argues that this is just vampire politics or whatever, which means it's up to Kaname rather than him, and I just... Y'all, this boy had better be some degree of in on whatever Kaname's up to, or else I'm calling shenanigans on his entire character. Either he is very up to something adjacent, or he's just incredibly fucking stupid. Like, oh, don't worry, Kaname will take care of it, is not remotely anything resembling responsibility. And if there's one thing a boarding school headmaster needs, it's a sense of responsibility? Being responsible for the day-to-day -day and bigger picture of the school is literally the job description. Do your job, Cross. So, um, then we come to my absolute biggest confusion of the episode. I'm going to read Yagari's translated line here because it makes absolutely no sense to me. So, 
Send help. Here it is. Are you saying that he, that Zero, is a vampire too? Huh? Um, am I extremely high right now? Or, actually, I, I don't know what the alternative explanation is. It's got to be some kind of a mistranslation, right? Episodes 5 and 6 were literally all about Yagari dealing with Zero's vampirism. It is absolutely impossible for Yagari to not know about Zero being a vampire. So, what the fuck? I am extremely confused. So, I guess let's move on? The kitty cat shows back up, snuggling up against Yuki, and then there's Maria. The cat super doesn't like her, and he bites Yuki's finger to get away from the two of them. This pain, or perhaps the sight of this blood, brings back the memories that Konami tried to erase, and Yuki confronts Maria, who brags that Zero is on the end of becoming a level E. And so Maria proposes a trade. She can help Zero, but Yuki will have to do something for her in exchange cut to Zero for some flashbacks. We're finally introduced properly to Ichiru, whose attachment to Zero blows Yuki's uncomfortable relationships with both her foster brother and her secret biological brother right out of the water. The incest subtext between these two boys is just off the fucking charts. These two are like a half step off from being full-on Lannisters. They're cuddling and talking about how much they love each other and snuggling in bed and cupping each other's cheeks and pressing their foreheads together while they hold hands. And if that's what you get up to, with your siblings, that's your business. But I could not believe what the fuck I was looking at, and at no point does it get any better. Even Ichiru's insistence that he wants Zero dead comes across as kind of disingenuous and incredibly complex. It's clear that he's in love with Shizuka, sure, but he's also very obviously in love with his twin brother. It is certainly something. But back to the past. Zero and Ichiru find Shizuka lurking around in the cherry trees while they're children, and while Ichiru is immediately a bit smitten, Zero can tell right away that Shizuka is a vampire. And sometime later, when Shizuka shows up with murder on her mind, Zero is the one who first senses her arrival, despite the fact that it's his parents who were actually proper hunters. And because he answered the door alone, Shizuka is able to snatch Zero away before his parents can save him. Shizuka tells him that she's getting payback for the death of a man, obviously a lover of hers, and then she bites Zero while his parents are powerless to save him. Sometime later, when Zero's parents are dead and he is too weakened from blood loss to do anything, he spots his brother standing behind Shizuka. He tells Ichiru to run, but Ichiru doesn't. And in spite of the creepy-ass smile on Ichiru's face, Zero does not at any point in the ensuing four years put two and two together. He never realized that Ichiru was the one who betrayed their family. Not until now. Because when he wakes from his dream flashbacks, he finds Ichiru standing in the shadows of his bedroom. But while Zero is brooding and unwilling to pull his gun on his long-lost brother, Ichiru has no such reticence. His gun comes out right away, and he points it at Zero without any hesitation. He mocks his brother for how far he's fallen since his parents were alive and he was the preferred son to Ichiru's sickly disappointment. Another flashback, though, reveals that Zero has probably just been repressing his memories of his brother's betrayal. We've seen the Pieta plagiarism scene before, the one with Shizuka cradling Zero's body in her arms after her attack, but now we see that there's actually more to the scene. Ichiru has no reaction at all to his brother's predicament or to his parents' corpses or their deaths. He just warns Shizuka that she'll get caught by the hunters if she doesn't get out of Dodge while she can. Apparently, there was a, quote, growing darkness in Ichiru's heart because of his weakness 
weakness. His parents thought that his ongoing disability would mean that he would never become a hunter, which feels like very much not a big deal, but is apparently enough to launch Ichiru into murderous scheming. I mean, I'm sure Shizuka was probably whispering shit in his ear for a while before he went full Menendez, but... Well, it really does seem like Zero and Ichiru's parents must have been complete trash, given the way that Ichiru clearly relied on Zero alone for love and security, while also thinking that his parents hated him to the point that he might as well kill them. Ichiru, essentially, is a fascinatingly bizarre person, which is emphasized by what he says next. He thanks Zero for being so nice to him when they were kids. It makes me happy, he says, to the point of hating you. And, um... What? Once again, this is insane troll logic. But this is that trope done right. This isn't the narrative endorsing something illogical and nonsensical. This is a villain with a truly incomprehensible perception of the world. Ichiru has just entirely lost the plot. He's delusional and dangerous and as obsessed with his brother as he is in love with Shizuka. And the headcanons that I can already see fluttering all around this little idiot for me Oh boy, I genuinely hope he shows back up in season two because I think he's nuts and I love it. More and more, I began to care less about our parents' existence, he says, and my beloved Zero. Actually, I always hated you. It is such an obvious lie. Guys, I'm serious. This dude is literally trying to talk himself out of being in love with his twin brother. It is so batshit. Seriously, I get why Shizuka kept this dude around for the past few years. He's hilarious. Honestly, I feel like I understand Shizuka's own crazy nonsense so much more thanks to him. The utterly fucked dynamic between Zero and Ichiru and Shizuka is just... It's good. It's really good. Anyway, Ichiru claims that he's the one who asked Shizuka to spare Zero, but I'm not sure if I believe that. Shizuka shares some insight into her motivations later, and based off what she says, I'm much more inclined to believe her perception of the situation than Ichiru's. But we'll get to that when she gets to that. In the meantime, Ichiru claims that he wanted Shizuka to spare Zero so that Zero would suffer until eventually Ichiru came back to kill him, and like, honey, no. I get it, you're going through something, but this denial is... Well, I won't say it's not cute, because it definitely is, but it is pathetic as well. It's unbelievably pathetic. Ichiru wanted Zero to live, because he wants Zero to live. But he's built himself up, in his own mind, as this villainous character who hates his whole family, so of course he wants Zero dead for that reason. He'll just kill him, you know, later, when he feels like it. He'll just procrastinate for a while first. You gotta get the whole thing just right, you know? It's so silly. And if you think I'm wrong... I mean, here we go again with Ichiru pressing his forehead up against Zero's. Like, if this anime were for adults instead of for teen girls, I guarantee that this would be even more explicit than it already is. Let me put it this way. I would never, under any circumstances, press my forehead up against the forehead of either my brother or a person I truly hated and intended to immediately kill. This isn't I-want-you-dead behavior. This is Faith kissing Buffy on the forehead because the censors wouldn't let her kiss her on the mouth behavior. Oh my god. Elsewhere, though, Yugari is storming around with a gun, looking for Zero. Again, I don't know what the fuck is going on with him in this batch of episodes, so let's move on. Ichiru explains that Shizuka has made him strong and healthy by feeding him her blood, and Zero is, of course, invited to join the two of them. 
Again, I don't know who this dork thinks he's fooling. Literally anyone and everyone with eyes can see that he doesn't actually want to kill his brother. His motives jump out even before this moment, but he vocalizes them quite clearly here. He's inviting Zero into the weird almost romance that he's had going on with Shizuka for years. And Zero, for his part, is not remotely interested. He tries to draw Ichiro into a physical fight, but Zero collapses from degeneration. And of course, this gives Ichiro the excuse he needs to bow out before things escalate to someone actually getting killed. He says he's going to leave Zero to his suffering and then inburst Yagari. Yagari is only momentarily surprised by Ichiro's appearance. He pushes past him to go help Zero, and when Ichiro pushes him to attack, Yagari makes what feels like a very inauthentic attempt at compassion. Now, I get that this is supposed to be a sincere character moment. What happens next makes that incredibly clear. Yagari literally takes a sword to the chest to protect Ichiru. But it doesn't at all feel in line with the rest of his characterization. It feels like a bizarre moment of fanfic characterization. It feels like he goes fully out of character just for a second, just to have this big moment of, see, everyone actually really cared about Ichiru. And like, not only was that not necessary, because it's incredibly clear already that yes, Ichiru is delusional, but Yagari has been so consistently harsh and cold and even cruel. I get that he's supposed to be this well-intentioned, hard-ass kind of character, but not for a single second before this moment did he ever come across as the kind of character who would take a sword for Zero or Yuki, let alone fucking Ichiru. But here we are. Zero is degenerating, Yugari is stabbed straight through, and Ichiru just kinda wanders away. And after Zero gets Yagari to the headmaster, he too just kinda wanders away. There is a brief scene of conversation between Cross and Yagari after Yagari's been bandaged up, and oh boy, is that unrealistic for the wound this dude has just suffered? Stabbed straight through your entire torso is not a slap a bandage on it situation, my dude. But Yagari tells Cross that Ichiru is still alive, and then asks if Cross is going to stay a bystander. On the one hand, I am very amused by what I feel is the increasingly inevitable reveal that Cross is some kind of a badass. And on the other hand, it's moments like this, when Zero is struggling and starving and literally anywhere doing literally anything, while Cross just sits on his ass and refuses to lift a finger, that make me increasingly convinced he's a pretty awful jackass. Especially if he is a secret badass who just refuses to get involved rather than being a doofus who really can't intervene. But, meanwhile, Yuki is completely zoned out while she's supposed to be setting up for the dance. The arrival of Zero, though, drenched in blood, draws her away, and she once again offers him her neck. This time, he's so starving he doesn't even have a chance to get sanctimonious. He shoves her up against a wall, because of course he does, and then he drinks from her. And let's be clear here, this is a him thing. This is not a vampire thing. We've seen blood drinking in this show many times before. Other vampires do not run around pinning their victims to walls or the furniture. Zero, though, pins Yuki at the drop of a fucking hat. And that is the reason I don't like him. Or at least it's one of them. It's not his thirst that makes him cross lines and mistreat Yuki. It's his goddamn personality. And while Zero drinks from her, we finally get to hear the deal that Maria proposed to Yuki. It's quite simple. Maria will save Zero from becoming a level E vampire if Yuki agrees to either let Maria bite her, perhaps to drain her dry, or perhaps to turn her into a vampire too, that is still up in the air, or to kill Kaname. How the fuck Yuki is supposed to be able to kill Kaname though, 
I have no fucking clue. This dude pops up all over the place and seems to know damn near everything that's going on. Even if Yuki tried to hide that bloody rose gun somewhere on her person, I think he would clock it before she even got the chance to actually pull it out of her pocket or whatever. And I don't for a second believe that he truly lets his guard down around her anyway. He seems to be in the endgame of like phase one of a plan or something here. There is no way that he doesn't realize Maria is going to pull some kind of shit like this. And with literally every vampire remarking upon his relationship with Yuki at this point, of course Yuki would be the obvious way to get at him. He'd have to be a total moron to get killed by dipshit Yuki. And if there's one thing this dude isn't, it's a moron. He's a creep, he's a killer, and he's a manipulative, scheming bastard. But he's not a fucking fool. So, with our action temporarily ground to a halt, Zero reflects on what his brother and Maria told him. Most distressing is Maria's proclamation that a turned vampire cannot kill their sire. Not much better is Cross's insistence that Zero stay on high alert at the ball tonight. Cut to Yuki. Yuri comes in with a package and is shocked to see that Yuki is in her school uniform. Yuki insists that she doesn't mind working while everyone else is having fun, but her reaction when Yuri hands her the package tells another story. It's a dress from Kaname, because of course it fucking is, and then we're off to the ball. Cayenne is dressed like a goddamn pirate, and I kind of love it in the exact same way that I really want to like Cross himself. He's got plenty of hints at hidden depths, and he's definitely very pretty, but he's just too much of an incompetent weirdo for me to actually get on board with him as a character. So, Yuki and Zero go into the ballroom, and Zero isn't exactly thrilled to see Yuki's dress. But then she takes off her rose, the rose that Konami gave her to wear, mind you, and pins it to Zero's jacket. So just like Zero gave Konami Yuki's not-Valentine's-day chocolate, Yuki has now given Zero Konami's red rose. And you know what? Since we're in my final episode of coverage for the season, I'll go ahead and pick a ship. Now, part of me really wants to go all in on Shizuka, Zero, and Ichiru like Ichiru so clearly desperately wants, but I am only so cruel. Zero isn't interested in that. I'm sure it would make for a hell of a fun dark fic, but it's not proper shipping material if one person involved hates the others as much as Zero hates Shizuka. And for good reasons. So, well... It's the obvious choice, but I think I'm very much left with Kaname and Zero and Yuki at this point. That might change next season. Ido is the dark horse here, and if I can find someone good to ship him with, he's gonna take the crown. Right now, I've got the ideas of Kaname and Ido, Ido and Yuki, and Ido and Kane rattling around in my head, perhaps with Ido, Kane, and Ruka as a possibility? But right now, Kaname and Zero's relationship is far and away the most interesting, potentially consensual relationship. So, yeah, I guess I'll ship it until something better comes along. Kaname and Zero want to fuck Yuki, and let's say, oopsie doopsie, somehow they started hate-fucking, and then, oh no, how could we have guessed? Now we're just into each other. And also, let's imagine that they're all, like, a decade older than they're supposed to be in canon. Now that kind of works for me, I guess. So... Yuki goes looking for Kaname while Ruka rejects the weirdo who keeps harassing Yuki, and he decides to fucking neg her for some reason before he asks her to dance. I don't get it, and he's a goddamn weirdo about it because of course he is. Yuki points out that he's not moving with the music, and he reveals that he is literally dancing to the music inside his head, and the dirty look that Zero is giving them here probably is not too far off from the look on my face as this whole thing goes down. 
because Kaname gives Yuki this very man-hugging-his-teenage-sister hug while insisting that he doesn't see her as a child, and I am just so tempted to take back what I just said about reluctantly shipping these two in any capacity. Yuki is just so utterly the dead end of this trio for me. Kaname and Zero are both incredibly problematic in myriad ways, but Yuki reads as a little girl, a teeny tiny little girl. If she were 25 and acting this childish, I wouldn't like her, sure. But this, instead, is a 15-year-old both acting and being treated as if she's 12 maximum, and Kaname reads like he could be anywhere from 25 to a fucking million years old, and I would pay money to make the romantic aspect of this show just go away. Or to have Yuki replaced by someone else. Anyone else over the age of 18. But, while Zero is stuck rejecting the advances of another of their classmates, Aido asks Kane to follow him out of the ballroom. And out on the balcony, Yuki contemplates the choice that Maria gave her. She decides that she can't kill Kaname, and so, because she's the biggest idiot to ever live, she decides that she has no other choice than to let Maria drink her blood. To which I say, I'm sorry? You have so many other options, chief among which is to tell Kaname what the fuck is going on and ask if there's something else you could do besides go and get yourself either killed or turned, especially when being turned by Maria comes with the fun side effect of being indentured to her for the rest of eternity. Like, what is wrong with this child? Except, never mind, because that's it, isn't it? She is a child. She thinks like a child, and she acts like a child, and she solves her problems with a child's logic, which fundamentally means that she's not old enough to be in anything resembling a relationship with either of these two men, and I just want to pull my fucking hair out. Like, at the very least, she could have at least brought that anti-vampire gun that Zero gave her. Have we even seen that thing since he gave it to her? What a fucking missed opportunity! And you know what? I've decided that I take back my shipping preference. Yuki can have Kaname. Fuck em. This cute little girl in the glasses, the one whose personality did a complete 180 after Zero saved her from breaking her neck when she fell? Yeah. I've decided that she gets Zero. Zero does a lot of work to improve his temper and his control issues, and then he becomes the best boyfriend ever to Shindo or whatever the hell her name was, and Kaname fucks off into the sunset with his sister Bride. Does that work for you? works for me. But back to the show. Elsewhere, Ido is proving himself my favorite character once again. Not only is he the only one who managed to figure out that Maria was possessed by Shizuka, now he's actually found the place where Shizuka's real body is being hidden. But before he can do anything, Seiren shows up to tell him and Kane to get the hell out of there. Besides, says Kane, it's not like they could act against a quote, pureblood princess anyway. And our next episode opens with Yuki offering herself to Maria. It's a good thing that Zero is on her heels because Maria and Yuki aren't exactly getting along here. Maria starts throwing Yuki around and then in walks Ichiru with Shizuka's real body in his arms. Shizuka wakes and it's interesting that Shizuka is apparently controlling both bodies at the same time. How this works, I have no idea, but it is certainly a useful power to have but it doesn't last. Maria's body collapses a moment later, and we shift from focusing on Shizuka as Maria to Shizuka in her true form. There's a brief moment back at the ball between Kane and Ruka, and I'm pleased to see that I wasn't picking up on shit that wasn't happening. I was definitely getting a vibe off of them this whole time, and Kane finally propositions her for a dance after a season of build-up. But Ruka is still hung up on Kaname, and so Kane gives up and goes. 
back to Shizuka and Yuki. The former is leaning in to bite the latter when Zero walks in, and, well, this is either one of two things, and I know which I prefer. Either this is a huge coincidence, though a pretty pervasive one in storytelling, with Zero appearing at just the right moment, or Shizuka timed this very well, and she never actually intended to bite Yuki in the first place. I think there's potential room for confirmation of the second as canon, actually, given that we still don't know the full extent of Kaname's scheming and how Shizuka played into that. I'm perfectly willing to believe that it's possible Shizuka actually knew Yuki's secret identity all along, and never planned to either drink her or kill her. But I suppose we'll see. Once the Yuki reveal finally comes around, I think I'll know for sure what Shizuka was actually doing here. I definitely hope that it was more than a coincidence, especially since Zero showing up doesn't actually prevent Shizuka from just giving Yuki a quick nip anyway. If this is a coincidence, it's a bit deus ex machina. A bit of a shitty one, in fact. The story doesn't want Yuki bitten by a pureblood right now, and so Shizuka just stops when she sees Zero walk in. Like I said, Here's hoping it's more complex than that. Anyway, though. Zero pulls a gun on Shizuka, but Yuki isn't having it. She fully believes the bit about Shizuka being Zero's one and only get-out-of-level-E-free card, and so she threatens him with the Artemis Rod to protect Shizuka. But Zero isn't intimidated. And rightly so. But Shizuka flexes her powers. Back in her proper body, she is much more in control of Zero than she had been as Maria. She forces Zero to hold Yuki still while Shizuka drinks from Zero, and then, as Shizuka leans in to bite Yuki, Zero breaks out of the mind control despite literally no hints that this should be possible beyond male heroes always break free from mind control, see Harry Potter being able to fight the Imperius curse for no fucking reason. And of course, there's also Love Conquers All. Spare me. So, Zero is a stubborn asshole who won't listen, and he breaks free from her control because he's such a special baby, and to make sure that he doesn't fall back under her spell, he shoots himself in the leg with the bloody rose gun, and then shoots Shizuka with it three times in a row. But Shizuka, being far beyond any of the vampires he's encountered before, won't die from that alone. She taunts Zero about getting exactly what he wants, for the two of them to kill each other, and then inverse Ichiru. He chucks his sword at Zero, stabbing the idiot in the arm, and after Shizuka leaves to go heal, Zero tells Yuki that Ichiru is his twin brother, and it's played like this huge reveal as if the audience didn't already know. It's incredibly silly. But back to Cross and Yagari, both of whom I am incredibly over at this point. Cross seems to know that something fucking wild is going on, but he chalks it up to vampires gotta deal with vampire things, and refuses to intervene. And, um... Let's pretend that this isn't bad, you know, headmastering, and focus on the fact that, dude, your daughter is actively being attacked by a vampire, literally right now. Maybe you should go handle that, for fuck's sake. And hey, guess what? I take back my shipping preferences even further. Dark Horse coming in clutch. I ship Cross and Yugari. There. I did it. A non-crack ship with some degree of textual support. Go me. Back, surprisingly, to Aido and Kane. They get into a spat about Shizuka and Kaname. Aido is clearly dealing with a lot of feelings here. He doesn't like being left in the dark, sure, but that it's Kaname who's neglecting to tell him things surely hits harder than if it had been someone else. His feelings for Kaname are pretty obvious, and he clearly wishes that Kaname trusted him enough to let him in on whatever the hell is going on. But Kaname just doesn't like him like that, or respect him like that. And so it's Aido's arc that I find most interesting this season, I think. The next episode will see Aido 
Kaido incredibly suspicious of Kaname in the aftermath of the whole Shizuka thing, and so he's gone from pure devotion and adoration to this lovely bitter place of tension and disappointment, and I just really look forward to seeing where this goes from here. Aido versus Kaname is something I could really get behind. But elsewhere, despite having never even met Ichiro before, Yuki's dumbass jumps into the middle of his fight with Zero to start whining about how siblings shouldn't fight. And like, yeah, Yuki, but they shouldn't snuggle in bed together and shit either, and we're already well past that now, aren't we? Get out of the way. So begins the fight. Ichiru sounds like he's about to burst into tears when he admits that Shizuka won't drink his blood. She'll let him drink from her, but she won't bite him and turn him into a vampire no matter how much he clearly wants it. He is devastated by Shizuka turning Zero into a vampire instead of him, and the fight very accidentally ends up with Ichiru straddling his brother's waist. Very accidentally. And hey, if you somehow never picked up on the subtext, don't come crying to me. I am not the one who drew Ichiru sitting on his brother's crotch in this scene. I am just picking up what the writers and the animators are putting down. Cut to Shizuka. Kaname is waiting for her back in Maria's dorm room, and he reveals that her injuries will considerably dampen her powers until she's managed to heal, which will, of course, take longer because of the type of weapon used. She asks him why he's actually at the school, and he admits that it's to, quote, gather pawns while he repays a debt, and then he grabs hold of her from behind and thrusts his hand right through her chest and she takes it incredibly calmly. She admits that she had wanted to kill him, too, and speculates about what will happen if he rips her heart out right now. She's weak enough, she thinks, for her to die from it. But Kaname has another idea. He lowers his mouth to her neck and drinks, which is apparently a big taboo in the vampire world. As she explains, a pureblood who drinks the blood of another pureblood gains powers. And as she dies, she warns Kaname that he's heading down a dark path but he leaves her with a promise. He won't let her life go to waste. He will destroy the one thing she despised, that being, quote, the one who twisted the fate of the purebloods, and who the fuck, I ask, is that? I have no idea. It's not Zero, surely, who seems to have been her motivation for the past four years, nor is it her dead former lover, I don't think, who was her motivation before Zero, so, who is this mysterious someone who, quote, twisted the fate of the purebloods? And what does twisting the fate of the purebloods mean in the first place? Your guess is as good as mine. Outside the room, though, Ido is spying. He is now the one and only person who knows for sure that Kaname was indeed the one who killed Shizuka. But what is he gonna do about it? We will see next season, I'm sure. Back to Zero and Ichiru and Yuki. Ichiru rushes off to save Shizuka, but of course it's already too late. And Zero rushes off to kill Shizuka, but it's too late for that too, even before Yuki stops him and refuses to let him go. Moved by her compassion, Zero pulls Yuki into a hug that only lasts for a moment. He leaves her with the promise of his eventually returning, and then we're on to the final episode. Ichiru cradles Shizuka as she dies and begs her to drink from him, but she turns him down, decrying him as the one person she would never turn. And while it sounds romantic, it's not. She doesn't neglect to turn him here because she wants to spare him. She refuses to turn him because she isn't interested in complete submission. What she likes about Zero is his ability to struggle against her even after he's turned, and what she likes about Ichiru is that he submits even without being turned. And like, I get it, girl. 
I mean, I probably would have given him what he wanted and bit him as I died, even if, and perhaps especially if, it meant that he eventually came to regret the decision as he devolved into a level E, make it one last moment of be careful what you wish for. But anyway. We're in the midst of a flashback when Shizuka starts talking about her late lover, the one who was killed by Zero and Ichiru's parents and put her on the path to dismantling their family. As Shizuka explains, we move into flashback within a flashback. And isn't that fun? And there's a hint of something bigger happening here. I don't know precisely what's going on, but for some reason, Shizuka was being, quote, kept in a luxurious cage, and the previous episode implied that she met Kaname here when he was a little boy. She met her previous lover here, too. He was a human thrown into her cage to serve as dinner, but she liked the way he glared at her, which is hilarious, and so she turned him into a vampire. As she puts it, he resented her until the very end, though he did agree to run away with her. And they were happy-ish until Ichiru's parents killed that man, after which she killed them in vengeance. And then she kisses Ichiru. It's awful. And I love it. This poor stupid bastard is just a mess and a half. In the present, Ichiru tells her that he loves her as she dies, and then, very ominously, she tells him that she'll stay with him. And what the fuck does that mean? It might or might not be as simple as what we see next. Zero runs into the room, and of course, Shizuka's blood, a pureblood's blood, is the only way to save him from becoming a level E. But he's not going to be able to drink from Shizuka because Ichiru just drank her ass dry. And then she explodes into fucking sparkles and shards of ice or glass or whatever. It is painfully anime. So, with Zero struggling against the mindless bloodlust slowly consuming him, Ichiru abandons his brother, but only after decrying him as no longer the brother he remembers. When Yuki walks in on Zero convulsing, she runs to get help. She finds Kane, but when they get back to the room, Kayan is already there, and Zero is nowhere to be found. He claims that Yugari took Zero to the medical clinic, and Yuki is shocked that Zero could be, quote, hurt that bad, and I've really gotta emphasize how stupid this girl is. Like, yeah, honey, he's hurt that bad. He's hurt way worse than medical clinic bad. Are you paying attention? Later, though, after Zero has been gone long enough for Yuki to properly start worrying, she asks Cross if he knew about Maria being Shizuka. He says that he didn't, and that he's ashamed of himself for not being able to help when one of the students was in danger. Which student he means, though, I'm not sure. Because Maria herself, Zero, and Yuki were all fucked over by what Shizuka did. And, in the moon dorm, Kane, Ido, and Kaname discuss what happened with Shizuka. Kaname remarks that Zero will probably be assumed to have killed Shizuka, which will be interesting if that turns out to be the case. But Ido knows better, of course. He knows just who it was who, quote, broke the taboo and killed a pureblood. And Kaname knows that something is up with Ido, though he might not know that Ido was spying. I kind of hope he doesn't. I would love to see Ido be the one unnoticed flaw in Kaname's plan. Either way, though, Kaname puts on a good show of pretending to be sad that she's dead, and perhaps a part of him actually does mourn her. He remarks that it's a shame she was nicknamed Princess Kuruizaki, or something to that effect, by the rest of the vampires, and Google tells me that this translates roughly to Princess Crazy Bloom, which, yeah, that's rough. It is a great username, though. I might use that for something. But in the classroom, Shiki and Rima await the arrival of literally anyone else, but no one else is coming. Not even the teacher. 
And Kane is picking up on something being off about Ido. He admits to thinking about Shizuka, but he doesn't say more than that. And Kane tells him that he doesn't know much about her beyond that she had a pureblood fiancé and a formerly human lover on the side. And somehow, someone put her lover's name on the list for the hunters to kill, claiming that he was a level E when he most definitely was not. Now, I think there's some degree of a chance that Kaname did this, but the more obvious candidate, of course, is that pureblood fiancé she supposedly had. If she was in love with some former human instead of the man she was supposed to marry, it's no stretch to imagine that the pureblood in question had the former human killed. And of course I wonder whether we're going to meet that pureblood anytime soon, assuming that he isn't Kaname himself. But Aido doesn't care about that. He wants to know why Shizuka would come to Cross Academy in the first place. And since he doesn't know about her connection to Zero, there's only one thing that he suspects, that she was after the power of another pureblood vampire's blood. Speaking of power, Kaname is struggling to control his. Shit around him is crumbling and splintering and exploding, and so I think it's hilarious that he chooses this moment to go find Yuki. All I could picture throughout this entire scene was Yuki just exploding too, and I can't pretend I would have been terribly mad about it. It would have been very funny. What I am mad about, though, is the shit that Konami is pulling in this conversation with his sister-girlfriend. He's guilting her about, quote, not letting him protect her, and like, fuck all the way off, boy, leave her alone. Which he does. He goes to the cell where Zero is chained and drugged and yet rabid nonetheless, and he lures Cayenne and Yagari away. And he lets Zero drink from him. And it is gay, 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 gay. These two have way more chemistry than either one of them has with Yuki. It's literally no contest. And when Zero begins to drink, moaning Yuki's name the whole time, somehow all the other vampires on campus immediately sense it. There is not going to be any keeping this secret, is there? So... That is season one, and I'm going to be starting season two later today. Before I finish this recording up, I want to leave some brief thoughts here at the end. First and foremost, I think Yuki is a horrible protagonist. I also think Zero and Konami are both toxic love interests, though Konami's scheming and apparent villainy at least makes him an interesting one. The supporting characters, unfortunately, are mostly shallow. Aido is by far the most interesting among them, but even he gets very little to do over the course of the first season. As for the plot itself, I wish that Maria had been introduced earlier, and I wish that Shizuka could have been around longer and been more interesting. But I'm really looking forward to seeing where this story goes in its second season. I think the world still has tons of untapped potential. I think Aido and Konami's arcs were both left on very promising notes, and I think Konami and Zero's relationship just took a very interesting turn. Yuki, of course, remains tolerable but largely uninteresting in a very generic protagonist-of-a-girl's-anime kind of way. So, I guess recommend me some girls' anime series with better protagonists, please? Now, in spite of my gripes, I do want to emphasize that I really did enjoy this series. This was a lot of fun. There's only one more season, so I assume that the story is mostly going to be wrapped up at the end of the second season, and I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to seeing how everything plays out from here. 
I am, admittedly, not particularly fond of most of the cast here. I find their interpersonal relationships rather interesting, if sometimes shallow. I think Kaname and Aido are the most interesting characters at this point, with potential for Cayenne Cross to also be interesting in the future. We keep getting hints that he's secretly this huge badass, and I will believe it when I see it, but if the hints are going to lead to something interesting, that could turn out to be incredibly fun. We will see. Now, as I said, I'm going to be watching the first three episodes of season two as soon as I can, and of course, I will be back very soon with my coverage of those three episodes. If you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, please feel free to leave a rating or a review as glowing or as damning as you like on your podcatcher of choice. If you're interested in helping me choose what it is that I will be covering in the future, you want to head over to my Patreon, where for $1 per month, you can get access to all of my polls determining what it is that I watch. If you're interested in seeing my recorded reactions to these episodes, those are available to $5 patrons on a weekly release schedule or to $10 patrons as soon as they're filmed. Right now, I have all kinds of reactions up for everything from comedy series like Zack Stone, horror movies like In the Tall Grass, stand-up specials like Nicole Byer's Big Beautiful Weirdo, and Netflix darlings like Squid Game, Umbrella Academy, Bly Manor, and Midnight Mass. Beyond that, I will be back next week with my thoughts on the first three episodes of Vampire Night Season 2, and I hope you will join me again. As always, Thank you so much for listening.